Hi, I'm Peter Keegan. And I'm Laura Boswell. And over there we have the very talented Mr B on sound. Welcome to Ask an Artist, the podcast that aims to give you as much advice as possible to help you become a working artist, the sort that actually gets to make art and pay the bills at the same time. Laura and I are both that sort of artist. We pay our bills and we do it by making art. And every week we'll be using our personal experience to give help and advice in making art your proper job. So it's that time again where Peter and I let you at home take control of the podcast by asking us some of your pressing arty quandaries. Thank you to all of you who've asked us questions via our website at askanartistpodcast.com or via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. So today we're going to be discussing sending work through the post, cutting down a bespoke print to size, and my toes are starting to curl at the thought of that, and coming to art later in life. Now, the first question we've got, I think, is probably one for you, Peter. So I'm going to read it and pass it to you to start with. Okay, here we go. It goes, this is from Gillian via our website. Hi, Laura and Peter. I'm starting to sell my paintings online, painting mainly on canvas board and stretch canvas in a range of small sizes. I'm not sure what packaging I would use that's economical, but also offers enough protection. Have you any suggestions? So, Peter, you're used to sending work in that sort of state through the post. What do you do? So I think um, I like uh, Gillian, and well done, Gillian, for selling your paintings online as well, is to is to try and make it as economical as possible. Um, and also, you know, an environmental kind of side as well. I, I don't want to use too much in the way of, of plastics and so on. Now, there's lots of different ways to send art. Um, the pieces that uh, Gillian is clearly sending are, um, so she said, stretch canvases and canvas board. Now, these are very light uh, surfaces and they're quite small, as she said. So this is not going to be a massive, big, cumbersome uh, thing to send. Obviously, there's no glass involved as as, as yours, Laura, you know, they have mm. glass on there. And I know that Mr. B uh, and yourself do take great care in sending your prints, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. So when I'm sending uh, my pieces, it's sort of, it comes in sort of different layers, if you like. It's like, you know, the best advice when you go out into the cold, you know, if you wear multiple layers, it's the best way. So I start off by uh, carefully wrapping the painting itself. And I use the kind of the newsprint uh, sort of paper. So I kind of wrap that quite delicately. And that's partly to kind of protect any abrasive quality to the, the brush strokes and so on. Can I can I just interrupt you for a sec? You say newsprint, but you you mean blank stuff, don't you? Rather than newspaper with printing all over it. I'm just <laughs> yeah, I'm right. just a bit anxious about <laughs> transfer of print onto onto painting. So I think you know you and I tend to talk about newsprint, but what we mean is is newsprint paper with no type on it. That's right. Yeah. No. This, there's no uh, news of the world or anything like that for you to be reading on that. It's uh, it's news. It's blank fish and chip paper, as I like to call it. It's a it's a really lovely kind of surface. I draw on it as well sometimes. Uh, but I wrap up the painting in that, and it's to protect the brush strokes and so on. And then once I've done that, it's all about how do you protect that within inside the packaging. And you could do this a number of the ways. Um, I still have a big roll of bubble wrap that I'm kind of working my way through. So then I would then wrap uh, that sort of canvas uh, board. Uh, with two or three kind of wrappings of of bubble wrap. Um, I'm paying particularly uh, kind of caution to the edges of the board. That sort of tends to be the area that is most sort of uh, delicate, if you like, to being dented. And then once I've kind of got that beautifully kind of contained, this big kind of squashy cushion, then I'll kind of wrap that very carefully with uh, cardboard, recycled cardboard. I do my best to actually try and recycle as much of the cardboard. So the packaging that I'm, if I'm ordering something from Amazon or something, if I can uh, reuse it, I will try and reuse it. I'm currently still going through 
the moving boxes. When I move from studio to studio, I'm still going through those boxes. Uh, so I'm not having to kind of uh, buy anything new. And then it's the art of of getting as much of the kind of parcel tape around it, kind of securing, you know, that, that nothing can get in and indeed nothing uh, can get out. Um, as well. I always make sure I put a little note in there and, and some cards or something else as, as a little token and gesture of thanks. Um, but I try and allow some space around the edges particularly. So instead of having it as like a, a box, if you kind of imagine a, rectang- a rectangular box, I try and sort of have the ends sort of come uh, together, sort of pieced tightly together and then kind of tie that nicely. It makes the package All right, so a little it's bigger. Not, any impact is not going to be up against the corner That's of right. the the, pr- uh, the picture, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I try and cut it. It will make the package a little bigger, which may affect shipping costs. But my concern is to make sure that it gets to uh, uh, the person in one piece. If I am working on a slightly larger canvas, um, of course, the canvas is essentially fabric. And, you know, heaven forbid if a parcel accidentally got hit, knocked by a very sharp corner in the very centre of it, there is a potential danger, of course, that that could pierce the canvas. So if I am working on a slightly larger canvas, say, I don't know, 50 by 40 centimetres, I would consider putting a light sheet of hardboard or wood in front of uh, the canvas just to kind of hopefully protect it should anything uh, dangerous happen. Um, but it evolves, you know, it's, it's, it's partly using materials that I already have, but if I do need to buy uh, some materials in as well, packaging materials, I will uh, order that as well. And does that sound similar to the way that you and, and the talented Mr. B uh, ship your work? Because I imagine with with paper, there's an element of how do you secure that it's not going to get creased? And of course, then the actual, if you're sending it fully framed as well, how, how do you combat all those issues? Well, when it comes to frame behind glass, we prefer not to send it uh, out in that state. We tend to send things out unframed. And to be honest, almost all our clients would are happy about buying unframed prints. And what we do is we use the a tube. So uh, unless the print is very small, we would put it into a tube and we, uh, I, I'm, Mr. B is the expert here, but I'm paraphrasing. He basically will pad it with corrugated card and brown paper and it's all wrapped up and then it's got this sort of like internal padding then it goes into the tube and it has padding at either end of it then the tube is very securely done up and it's a heavy duty tube as well it's not a cheap thing it's a heavy duty tube and then we send the tube through the post so like you what we're doing is we're using plenty of layers and we're providing a sort of air buffer around the work and making sure that no part of the actual print comes into contact with potentially being hit and things like that Mm. I mean it's in a perfect world there would never be any problem but you know, however well you wrap it, occasionally a catastrophe happens and a massive weight gets dropped on it or knocked. So, you know, you do have to be careful and think through what sort of insurance you have or whether you are prepared to replace that picture or refund the good, refund the money and write it off. You know, you have to think, you know, hopefully it will be fine, but you have to plan for a a worst case scenario as well. So do think about that when you're working out what packaging you're doing and the kind of way you're packaging it up. Yeah, well done. And good luck, Gillian. I hope you, all your parcels arrive safely to their uh, uh, delighted owners. All right, well, let's get into our second question, which I think is very much uh, directed at you, uh, Laura. And it's uh, this is from Deborah. And she says, hello, devoted listener here. So hello, Deborah. Um, oh, we like devoted her, listeners. Absolutely. 
Her question is, I am a printmaker working predominantly with photopolymer prints. Have I said that right, Laura? Photopolymer yep, prints. I is that right? You okay. Have, yes. So how do you feel about customers asking you to change the trim of your work? And that's the white space not affecting the plate of the image itself. So how do you feel about customers asking you to change that trim to suit their own space on the wall, their own environment. This could be before you sell the work, you know, can you trim uh, this to fit the space on my wall? Or even after the sale, when your print is now out of your hands. So what is there a rule or an etiquette in this in the printmaker's rule to slightly trim pictures to fit? It's, an it's, it's all right, one. isn't it? <laughs> it is an interesting one. And... So when you make a print, you have uh, a margin around it as where you would sign it, you'd write the edition number and so forth. And this is always of interest to me because quite a lot of my prints, there is very little official boundary because I use a lot of white space in my work and it's like blank paper anyway. So it sort of bleeds into what could be considered to be the margin. So What's being asked here, what Deborah's asking here is a really valid point because when you trim the margin of a print, it can have an impact on the overall visual quality of a print. So if you are making a print that's got, it's got an edge all the way around and you've, you just happen to have done it on a big size piece of paper, as I do sometimes, then yeah, cutting it down is not an issue because you're still leaving yourself margin. But if your work has a very considered margin or you're using like me white space in the work then trimming it could have an impact on the balance of the image because as you know as with your paintings as with my prints when you compose the image you have it carefully balanced in a certain way and it works in a certain way and that can be changed so I think there is the question of does it impact on the artwork and if it does impact on the artwork how do you feel about that now once you've sold an artwork then things will be done to it that you won't necessarily like so my attitude to anything like trimming I mean Deborah mentions the sort of once after the sale somebody asking her maybe to change the size of it I always feel that once the clients bought it and taking it away, it's theirs to do with as they want, but it's no longer my responsibility to do other things to it for them. So I would not be interested in trimming down work a client's taken away to be framed by somebody else, for example. And that would all be out of my hands and I wouldn't have anything to do with that. And you just sort of let it go. And if they want to cut it into a circular picture and put it in some strange frame. That's really their call. If they want you to trim it for them when they're sort of there, I would, first of all, I'd be damn sure I had the money <laughs> before I did anything to the print because you don't want to get into a situation where you cut it down and they look at it and say, oh no, I don't like it now and I don't want it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> which is possible you know people are a bit mm. like that so you know if you're going to do that for them as a favor get the money up front but it's not something I've ever been asked to do and I think if it was one of my white space pictures and I thought it would alter the print then I would probably do my best to reach some agreement with the client where they could at least 
check the measurements at home or maybe even have it on approval untrimmed and see what it looked like in the space. Mm. I would try and persuade them that it would be bad for the picture. I have to admit, when I, when I read this question, I was, I was sort of thinking it, what, in what way would a alteration be beneficial? So much so that, you know, that the artist got it wrong mm. and I think I would change it. And the only sort of, you know, I have a print at home. And it's it's intentionally, it's a very small little print, sort of just maybe a little bigger than a postage stamp. And then, of course, the margin, the white space around it is massive. And then you've got the mount, which makes it even bigger. And there's something really nice about it. It's, it's a good size, you know, frame and, and with lovely white space. And then a little little print in the middle, which is charming. It's, it sort of, you know, shows off the small delicacy of the print. And, and that is clearly intentional. If I decided to cut all that white away, suddenly it changes the whole impact. And I think that's a good example where it's just, it's not appropriate to, to even ask that. And I think it would change the artwork. Whereas I was thinking of, uh, of a piece uh, that I acquired and it was... It was a square print, but there was considerably more margin left at the bottom. So it was sort of floating very much towards the top. And I kind of thought, I thought the picture would benefit if actually the the margin all the way around this square print was the same width. And it became a square piece instead of a kind of a rectangular uh, framed thing with a square in the middle. So I thought that was potentially one area I would slightly, for decorative purposes, or I think would bring out the best in a print that I would slightly adapt and tweak the rules. But I, I don't know whether I would personally ask the artist to do that. I think that's my yeah, I, that's my choice, you know, I, and it's my choice where I put it, whether I hang it in the downstairs yeah. loo or whether I hang it above the mantelpiece. It's my choice. Absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Peter. I, I think it's very much once the buyer has paid for it, they can do with it what they will. And um, actually, I'm always delighted when people hang my work in the loo because I always feel it gets looked at an awful lot more. I had a, I had a lady and her husband came bounding into my open studio and said, oh, we love your print. I've got it by the loo. And she was absolutely mortified. And she actually said, you know, she sent me a photograph of it and she said, it's in the, it's beside where the loo is. I don't want you to think it's in the loo. And I thought, well, I wouldn't have been offended anyway, but that's just an aside. So I think in answer to this question, what happens once the print is bought is up to the client. But no, I wouldn't necessarily want to trim a print down for a client. I I think that's something that they should do, unless it's just excess paper that is neither here nor there. So I think... Having dealt with that, it's a good time to splash some colour into this podcast. So, Peter, I do love to be beside the sea, so take me there this week. (laughs) Well, I am, because I don't know about you. I am fed up of all this grey, cold, miserable weather. And what I'm yearning for is bright, clear skies with an endless, inviting sea stretched out in front of me. And what colour can better represent this feeling I'm yearning than cerulean blue cerulean cerulean however you call it it is a gorgeous (laughs) color and it's even more it's a fabulous gorgeous sky blue color with its subtle turquoise undertone to it making it the idea color for landscapes uh, and in particular seascape painters out there the impressionists and the pointillists were particularly charmed by its hypnotic qualities now the pigment came to us in around 1860 and it was named cerulean which derives from the latin word salium i think it's pronounced and that means heaven's sky that a beautiful description for that color um, it it's lovely. a pure blue pigment um, and it has this bright, opaque quality 
uh, to it due to its highly refractive particles, making it the go-to colour for artists looking to capture the bright, intense, dazzling blue of a cloudless sky or a bright blue sea. Oh, gosh, Laura, I'm almost there right now. Gorgeous (laughs) colour. That does sound really, really beautiful. So if you'd like to sail away into a land of colour and find out all about that cerulean blue and the colour range offered by Michael Harding, all you need to do is to visit his website at michaelharding.co.uk. So now we've had our colour fix, I'm going to hand over the next question to Peter to read because I think it's more directed at me. Yes, and I have to be very delicate in how I do this because this is for um, maybe the senior artists amongst <laughs> you, of which you're not, Laura. You're definitely not a senior artist. I, I think of you as a young spring chicken. Sorry, right, so you're on not- Zoom. You're safe. I can't smack you from here. <laughs> so this is an email from Michelle and it reads, I am in my mid-40s deciding if I should consider becoming an artist later on in life. I did originally train in art years ago, but career and family have always come first. I'm now in a position to start thinking about becoming an artist, but is it too late? Are there any benefits or drawbacks in turning to art as a second or even third or fourth career? And would it be noticeable compared to the young new artists in their 20s that are in the art world? So this is clearly sort of second career, third career thing, which I know for you, Laura, you have Mm. come to art in that capacity. You've had all sorts of jobs before you were as a working artist, haven't you? I have indeed, yes. Um, And I think it's a really interesting one because there are a couple of things to think about. And the first one is when you decide this is going to be a move that you're going to make and you want to go into being an artist as a career, you need to be clear, is it really to have a career as a working artist where you're selling and making your money that way? Or do you mean that you would like to make art and have a bit more time in your life? So from, from what this lady says, I think she's, she's looking at it as being a career. And the other thing about it is not to be romantic. It's going to be a hard slog, just like any other career. Think of it more. Do I want to run my own business? Do I want Mm. to have a small business? Because if you want to be a working artist, that's what it's going to be like. So that's, that's what, so don't, don't think a bit about it as I'm going to drift off into the studio and have a lovely time making art. It's going to be very hard graft. So the one thing I would say about second or third or fourth career artists is that they tend to be realistic because they, they know what business, the business world is like. They'll have other experience of working in other fields. They'll know kind of the discipline of maybe working for somebody else, turning up on time, doing all that kind of thing. Or maybe they've had their own venture. So they know all about the rigors of running your own business. So in a way, you come to it with a good skill set based on other jobs. So when I morphed into being an artist and let's be clear here it was never a sort of carefully planned thing it was something I kind of just slid into I found that a lot of it I knew how to do a lot of the admin a lot of the um, paperwork the marketing things like that I already had some experience so you you are what you lose in the fact that you've been doing something else you kind of gain in those skills 
And as far as I trained as an artist and now I haven't done anything for years and can I still do it, that really worried me too when I was going back to printmaking, so much so that I kind of refused to do it for a year before I dipped my toe in the water. But actually what I found is that just because you might not be making art, it doesn't mean that your observational skills, your compositional skills, things like that, they don't stagnate. I found that I, when I started again, I was actually ahead of where I left off. I had developed in lots of ways that brought a stronger voice to my work the next time around. And do you think that's noticeably different from the kind of squeaky clean art graduates that are coming out sort of newly formed and still haven't quite figured out what it is they're doing? I think I think so. I mean, there's a lot to be said for sort of life experience. Mm. Um, and I also think a lot of it's in your head, this concept that, oh my God, I, I'm in my 40s, nobody's going to want to know me, it's all about the young things. That's your head speaking. That's not... I have never found that myself as far as I'm concerned and I think you probably experienced this too you are as good as your last piece of work that's what Mm. people care about what are you doing not how old are you where have you come from nobody's ever looked at me and said oh no I don't I don't want to know now I found out you're a second career artist Mm. and I'm sure nobody's come to you and said oh you've never you've never worked in a different line of work I don't want Mm. to buy your art I've done that kind of the complete opposite I've did art Mm. school and came straight out and had a part-time job art on the side and now art is my full-time job so I kind of had that very early progression but I have to admit I just when I read this question I sort of did a quick count of all the artists I know you know friends of mine and I think half of them over half of them were second career artists I thought that's well that's wonderful that it is clearly it's not biased to kind of one side it was a good even mix and they were coming from all sorts of backgrounds whether it was corporate whether it was education uh, whether it was sort of loosely arts but not specifically kind of fine art and of course almost always it's amazing how professional those second, third, fourth career artists are because, as you said, they bring in such a whole range of experiences uh, with them. So I thought that that's that was quite encouraging for you know for Michelle and any artists out there that you know you don't need permission. Uh, you know, it, it you are judged on your work. It doesn't matter what age you are, doesn't how whether you're experienced, whether you've actually got a degree or not, which I don't think really means anything. If you're good and passionate and committed to what you're doing, that will come first more than anything else. Um, and everything else is, yeah. is silly. <laughs> yeah, totally. I would totally agree with that. I think the the biggest hurdle to second career artists is probably that little voice in your head rather than anything external. Mm. So yeah, think it through and seize the day is the message. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, Laura. And I think this topic of, of coming to art later on in life would make for a, a, an episode in its own right. So maybe you and I should uh, find some artistic friends in their second, third career to share their point of view of what it's like being a working artist. But we won't be doing it in the immediate because I don't know about you, Laura. I'm a bit tired. I think <laughs> that I've been, we've been bashing out these podcasts for a, a year and a half now. And I think it's time we take a bit of a, a bit of a break. Well, 
I'd like to take a break, but we're quite busy at the moment, aren't we? We've got lots of stuff going on. I was going to say, it's no good being tired, Peter, because there's going to be no let up. So Peter's very involved with his teaching at the moment. He's doing some brilliant online teaching through Zoom. And I am in the middle of writing my book and I need to borrow Mr. B because there's a lot of photography to be done. So I think looking back, we've done 82 episodes on the trot. That's not a bad record. So we'll be taking a little break and we are going to be coming back on the 4th of June, aren't we, Peter? Yes, well, we're going to hopefully look forward to something a lot warmer and a bit more of a positive uh, light. And we can talk about things that we'll be doing hopefully in the summer and into uh, the, the rest of the year as well. But we will be in the meantime, during these uh, the, this little gap that we're taking, we have decided to choose some of our favourite podcast. So the three of us have, have, are going to bash our heads together, rummage around in the podcast bag and pull out some of our favourites and things that we think you would uh, benefit listening uh, to uh, whilst we're taking a little break away. So Laura, the talented Mr B, cheerio, have a nice uh, couple of months and I'll see you on the other side. You certainly will, Peter. I'll be there to meet you on the 4th of June when we come back to our podcast. And thank you, everybody, for listening. You will be able to catch up with the stuff that we have mentioned on this episode at our show notes at askanartistpodcast.com. And thank you very much. And we'll see you soon. Bye.